0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. What a blessing it is to be able to come together, excuse me, for the service of our Lord as we serve those who have been vulnerable and marginalized in our city, which is what we always aim to do at our Serve the City weekend, as we hope to continue to partner with our Serve the City partnerships throughout the rest of the year as well. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving at our Two Notch Church. It's always a blessing. I feel like I'm around family when I, come home, when I come back here. It feels like home, as I was here for a few years before I was sent out to plant uh, Midtown Two Notch. I am especially excited to be able to be here with you today in the middle of Serve the City weekend. Service City Weekend, for some reasons I'll get into in a little bit, is very dear to my heart, something I care tremendously about, and I'm just excited. We don't get a whole lot of opportunities as a family of churches to come together to do something, but I love the fact that we come together to show off the love of Christ, the love that has been shown to us as we serve those who are in need in our city. What a blessing, what a blessing that is for us. Now, our hope for Service City Weekend is that it would more so be a catalyst than a one-time event. My hope is that it will, it will spark interest in serving with our service city partners in, in a variety of different ways throughout the year. Here, later this evening, you have opportunities to learn about ways we can continue to be involved. And obviously, I want to encourage us to continue to do that. And if we are going to be most effective in serving those that are vulnerable, I believe we need to have some amount of understanding about what are the different elements, what are the, the different things that cause people in our society today to be in those vulnerable positions. There are a lot of things at play, there are a lot of factors that, that come into it that lead people to being vulnerable. I want to, maybe for some of you, this might be introducing a term, for some of you, you've heard this before. i want to talk a little bit about social determinants today. Social determinants. When I use that term, I'm referring to an economic or social condition that influences individual and group differences in things like health, education, economic status, etc. Again, when I use the term social determinant, I'm referring to an economic or social condition that influences individual and group differences in things like health, education, economic status, etc. In the Bible times, especially Old Testament times, one of the primary social determinants of that time was whether or not you had a man in your family that you lived with that was able to own land. Oftentimes, if you had a man in your family that owned land, that means you had someone who can advocate for you. You probably had some amount of resources. You had someone who can take care of you. That was a very important social determinant of that time. That's why in the Old Testament, you see commands that God gives to the people of God to be near and to take care of orphans, those who have no fathers, widows, a woman whose husband has passed away, and sojourners, which would have been men, women, and children who would not have been related to any of the men that are living there in Israel at the time. Thus, they didn't have a man in their family that owned land there. So over and over again in the Bible, God singles out this one specific social determinant and tells his people, because of the impact that this would have on someone's life, you need to be looking out for these. You need to be caring for them. You need to be advocating for them. If you're actually following me, those who are vulnerable in that vulnerable place because of that specific social determinant should know that you are there for them and that they can look to you to take care of them and to look out for them. They were to care for the vulnerable. In short, one of the things that I want to say is that in, in the Bible, we see an acknowledgment of some specific social determinants and God's people were to notice those things. And respond accordingly by serving them, by helping them, by being there for them, by just caring for them. This is part, a large part of what we do on Serve the City Weekend. this is why I'm so grateful for everyone who has already served, everyone who's planning on serving a little bit later, either today or tomorrow. I'm very grateful for you for serving and really showing off the love of Christ in our city in some very, very beautiful ways. In our societies today... There are a variety of social determinants. There there are many factors at play when someone finds themselves in a vulnerable position. From my experience, it's oftentimes not just one thing that caused them to be in that situation that they're in. And yet, on this day, on MLK weekend, I think it's appropriate to try to hone in on and zero in on one specific social determinant that I believe we need to be able to think about intelligently and be able to respond in biblically faithful ways the specific social determinant that I want to hone us in on today is that of race. I believe if we're going to walk in our biblical call to care for orphans, widows of our day, and really just be good missionaries in our day, we need to be able to have intelligent, biblically faithful, and sound conversation and understanding and action around the topic of race. The fact that race is a significant social determinant is why at least half of our serve city partnerships serve a majority African-American demographic. According to the most recent American community survey done by the Census Bureau, the racial composition of Columbia, when they did this survey, was, for white, it was about 52.3%, and for black or African-American, about 40.8%. percent i bring that up to make the point that we have some amount of diversity, some amount of racial distinction going on in our city. And so if we're going to be faithful as missionaries, it is helpful for us to be able to think through categories of race, being able to see it as a social determinant and know how to respond appropriately. From the Bible, we see that God doesn't ignore ignore excuse me social determinants, and neither should we. And I would say we especially shouldn't ignore the social determinant of race because of how much division there is even within the church, which I want to focus more so when I talk about race today, about relations within the church, because there is so much division even amongst the people of God around the topic of race. We must be able to respond, appropriately respond in biblical ways that we might pursue unity, that we might pursue harmony in the faith. I really love Jesus' words in John chapter 17, we'll start it at verse 20. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples before he's taken away to be crucified. And he's now talking to the Father. So he's spending time requesting different things from the Father. One of the things that he requests is that his people will be united together. They will walk in oneness. And I want you to pay very close attention to the reason he says that he wants his people to walk in oneness. The reason he says it's important that his people are united. John chapter 17, let's start at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, he said, I'm not just asking for the 12 that were, or the 11 that were with him at that time. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, here's the reason, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. He states the reason again right here. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. According to Jesus, as we see in this prayer, our unity makes a statement about our God. Our unity makes a statement about our Savior. If we walk in the oneness that God the Father has with God the Son, Jesus says the world will be able to see that and know that he is who he says he is. He says the unity of the church actually validates his claims that he was sent from the Father and that the Father has loved him and loves us as his people as well. Our unity then isn't optional. Pursuing unity with our our brothers and sisters, even across ethnic lines, even across racial lines, shouldn't be seen as optional because it makes a statement to the world about who our God is. He's saying our unity makes theological statements, that it proclaims a message about the validity of our Savior if we walk in unity with one another. I believe the way that we do serve the city truly serves to promote racial unity within the body of Christ my goal for us today is to help us to see why that is the case, with the hope that it will encourage us to continue to prioritize partnering with our Service City partnerships. That's my goal for today. I, I want us to be encouraged to continue on partnering with our Service City partnerships, serving the marginalized, serving those who are vulnerable, and I believe God will use it to promote racial unity within the body of Christ. Before I get into why I say that, I want to make a few acknowledgments that we need to be on the same page on. The first one is I just want to acknowledge that this is a difficult and scary topic to get into. I realize that. I actually speak about this a good bit in a variety of places, and I get nervous every time I get up to do it, even if I'm giving a message that I've already given before. It's just it's that that is the nature of this topic. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's painful. It's scary. But as the people of God, when there are topics that are important, we can't dodge them just because they're difficult. We can't dodge them because they make us uncomfortable. Another thing that I want to acknowledge is that obviously one sermon, one message isn't enough to talk about everything that needs to be said regarding racial issues and racial relations within the church and within our world and within our society. So my goal for today, as I said a little bit earlier, is to zone in very specifically, kind of be laser focused specifically on how we might think about race relations within the church in light of our Serve the City partnership. So I'm going to zone in there. Now, if you want to know more and hear more that we've said about race relations uh, within the church and within society, we actually did a series called Precious in His Sight a few years ago. You can find that at MidtownDowntown.com slash teaching. With that sermon series, I believe it's five sermons you'll find in there. With that sermon series, we also wrote a book because there was just so much to say about it. We actually, I believe we still have some after the 9 a.m. service. There should be some books out there in the lobby area, in the resource area, in the lobby that you can pick up on your way out. If you're interested in learning a bit more, so you can go online and find that that sermon series. And the, the PDF for the book, I believe, will be online with the sermon series. As well. So we would love for you to pick that book up on the way out if you are able to do so. All right, that said, let's get into the Bible a little bit on what does the Bible have to say about ethnicity? What does the Bible have to, have to say about matters of race specifically? We'll start at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. We'll start at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. If you're not very familiar with the book of Revelation, God gave John insight into heaven insight into, into how things will go, what, what we might see when we are there, and in part of the book of Revelation, John is, is sharing with us what God has shown to him. So right here, we're going to get a look into heaven. We're going to get to see what heaven is actually like. Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's important. That's important. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you have this huge number of people. He says, No one is able to count how many people that were there, and they were united. They were all washed or clean. They were all in white. They had palm branches in their hands, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God. But I want us to pay very close attention to how he describes the people that he sees. He says, I saw people from all nations, from all tribes, all tongues. In God's perfect redeemed creation, John is able to see ethnic distinction within the people of God. In God's perfect redeemed creation. That the diversity that was there was very apparent to John. I believe that's important. That helps us to see that God cares about, he loves diversity. He loves all peoples. We get more insight into this as we look at Matthew chapter 24. We'll see some words from Jesus here in verse 14. Again, Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is within Jesus' last week with his disciples before he was to be crucified. He's preparing them for what's going to happen after he leaves, and he's saying, just so you know, I'm not coming back until this message of salvation, this good news that I've shared with you, until you all take it to every people group on the planet. He so desires to have people from every nation, from every ethnicity as a part of his kingdom. He says, I'm not coming back to fully and ultimately establish my kingdom here on the earth until the gospel goes to everybody, to every people group, to all peoples. He cares about diversity. That said, since he uses that word nations— One thing that I find to be interesting and helpful is that that word nations there is is the word ethnos. It, It has the same roots as our word ethnic or maybe ethnic group or ethnicity. He's saying every nation, every people group, every ethnicity, he wants them to be there in his kingdom. Now, one distinction that we need to make is that that term there is different from the way we understand the word race. That's different. The word race was not used at that time the way it is currently used. More recently, the term has been used. It originally, was a, the term race was originally a European term that was used just to classify different people, so that you can cl- quickly, excuse me, uh, explain to people who it is that you're talking about or who it is that you're talking to. And it was used to classify people based on skin color and facial features. There was it was it had no negative connotations as far as I can tell from my research when it was originally created, and uh, eventually it was used. I would say, for, for racism and to promote some over others and that, and that type of thing. But I do want to say that they're, they're, they're different. The terms aren't, can't be completely interchanged. For example, if you are living in America, and let's say you're of Nigerian descent or maybe Ethiopian descent or maybe Sudanese descent, people, racially people would refer to you as black. If you're in our nation and you're of maybe German descent or Irish descent or English descent or heritage Racially, people would refer to you as being white. So race oftentimes is actually a a pulling together of different ethnicities as a way of trying to categorize people groups. My belief is that ethnicity has existed at least since God confused the languages of the people in the Tower of Babel or at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The first command in the Bible is actually to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because God wanted people groups all throughout the earth. They decided they wanted to stay together and build a city to make their own name great instead of filling the earth with God worshipers to make his name great. And he says, no, I'm going to confuse your languages now to get you to do what I've already called you to do. And thus, there was no choice but for there to be different ethnicities, different people groups as we see today. All right, let's get back to more words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, this is what's known as the Great Commission. These are the marching orders of the church. This is how Jesus is telling his disciples what they ought to be busying themselves with doing until he returns for us. Matthew 28, let's start at verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His desire is that his people would catch his passion for the nations. His desire is that his people would catch his passion for all ethnic groups. Because the, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, go and make disciples of as many people as you can. Go and make as many disciples as you possibly can, no matter where you go. That's not what he says. Go and make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is not fulfilled unless the people of God who at that time, I believe the ones you were talking to were all Jewish. They had to go to people who weren't like them, share Jesus with them. Then they would have to take the message to those who weren't like them. Then they would have to go and share the love of Christ with those like them. This is how the Great Commission is fulfilled. God cares for all nations, all ethnicities, all peoples. He loves diversity. It was his design. It was his plan from the beginning. And today, we live in what sociologists would refer to as a racialized society. A racialized society. A a, a racialized society. I can't say that word. A racialized society is a society where one's race plays a huge factor in their experience and how their life is lived. A racialized society is a society where racial distinctiveness is a factor in our identities, our relationships, our socioeconomic status. It's a society where you're never unaware of the race of the person you're interacting with. Let me try to show you what I mean. I have a few statistics from you from the last U.S. census where it was talk, it's talking about the net worth of white, the median white family compared to the median black family. So it says for the median white household, their net worth was $111,146 compared to the median black family that had a net worth of $7,113. That is not a typo. That is not a typo. It's even more distinct when you factor in education. So when you, when you further control the numbers for education, the disparity gets a little bit worse. So for a college degree-headed household, meaning the head of the household has a college degree, the median net worth for a white family is over $300,000, where for a black family, it's $26,000, This difference is so large that if all homes and vehicles were taken away from white Americans, they would still, on average, have a greater net worth than black Americans on average. We live in a racialized society where race plays a large role in our experiences. And because we live in a racialized society, we have a racialized church as well. The story of the relationships between blacks and whites in our country which is what I want to focus on primarily today. So when I'm talking about racial issues and things like that today, I'm not primarily talking about in our society as a whole. I want to zone in very much and focus on within the church. So the story of the relationships between blacks and whites in our country has obviously affected the relationship between black Christians and white Christians. And if we're going to be able to take good steps forward towards racial unity, we have to start by asking the question of what caused caused the problem in the first place? This is true of any type of reconciliation you've ever actually done and actually participated in where, racial, where reconciliation actually occurred. You start by dealing with the problem, right? If I, if I have some type of division with, with, with my wife, a life group member, a family member, the way you deal with it is by addressing the thing that caused the problem in the first place. You can't actually really pursue reconciliation and oneness and unity without dealing with the thing that caused the divide in the first place. So we have to ask, what does this division stem from? And I want to tell you what I believe it stems from, and then I want to try to spend a lot of the rest of our time explaining why I say that. I would say the division between black Christians and white Christians today stems from a lack of biblical discipleship and faithfulness around the topic of oppression in the Bible. I'll say that again. I would say the division between black Christians and white Christians today largely stems from a lack of biblical discipleship and faithfulness around the topic of oppression in the Bible. If you use the English Standard Version of the Bible, the word oppress, if you just did a search for it, if you went to BibleGateway.com right now and did a search for oppress, you will get 125 hits in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say. That doesn't even count when the Bible uses the word downtrodden to refer to those who are oppressed. The Bible has a lot to say about oppression, a lot to say about how his people should respond. The Bible has a lot to say about how God feels about it, about the experience of it, about what's actually going on when oppression happens. I want to be specific. When I use the term oppression, I'm referring to when those in power use their power in cruel and socially detrimental ways against those with less power. When I use the term oppression, I believe this fits with what the Bible is talking about when it talks about oppression. I mean, when those in power use their power in cruel and socially detrimental ways against those with less power. Try to give you an example of this and explain what went on. So in about 1980, I was born in 1986. So this was right before my parents got married. My dad had just graduated from the University of South Carolina and he moved back to Chester where he was from, where I grew up. And he was in grad school. He had his bachelor's in education and was getting his master's in administration as he was trying to become a principal, which he eventually became. My point in bringing up this story is in 1980, this was years after the Civil Rights Act Against Discrimination was already passed. He was not able to get a home loan. He went to multiple banks. He was very qualified with the education he had, especially at that time. And he kept getting denied over and over and over again. He, he continues to get more and more frustrated. Eventually, he just, he just almost demands an answer. It's like, okay, well, why are these other people who are less qualified than me getting home loans when I am not? And the bank loan officer looked at him in his eyes and said, it's because your daddy has the wrong skin color. That is oppression. That is when those in power are using their power in socially detrimental ways to others. you your boss liking someone else more than they like you, it's rude, it's cruel, not biblical oppression. Right? Your, your boss maybe even favoring someone, being more kind to someone else. And, th- and that can hurt our feelings, and that can create a lot of sadness and a lot of grief. And I'm not trying to diminish that, but there's a difference between being mistreated and being oppressed. And the Bible referring specifically to oppression. I'll, I'll try to give an example of one of the scriptures that the Bible uses to talk about oppression. Amos chapter 4, verse 1 reads, hear this word, you cows of Bashan or Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. Those cows on that specific mountain had gotten very fat. they have been fed so much they are going to be slaughtered, so they'd just gotten excessively fat, fed plentiful amounts of food. And he's calling some of the people in Israel, he's referring to them as those cows because of how fat and excessive they were. Fat as far as the things that they had accumulated. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. They were crushing the poor because they had more power than them, and they were using the poor to get more from them in a way that was excessively cruel to the poor. At a heart level, oppression is a result of sin corrupting our hearts and our minds, and because of that, corrupting our societies. So, for example, if people who are sinful and selfish are the ones that are able to make the rules for how a society is run and they care more about themselves and their families and people that they identify with than they care about those who are not like them, then their sin will work its way into the systems and policies and everything that they create and they will create systems that are oppressive. It's it's, it's selfishness when it's systematized and works its way into, into policy and into rules and government and that type of thing. Quick side note, the belief that everyone is valuable and worthy of dignity and respect is a distinctly Christian idea. It's actually a foreign concept in many places where the Bible has never been proclaimed, where Jesus has never been proclaimed and preached. Earlier I said that the racial division in the church stems from a lack of biblical discipleship and faithfulness around the topic of oppression in the Bible. I want to try to explain how that has played out historically so you can see exactly where I'm coming from and why why I would say that. So I would say the original divide issue between Black Christians, White Christians, the quote-unquote Black Church, and the quote-unquote White Church began centuries ago. Have you ever considered in this land, in our very state, in our very city, where there, were, where enslaved Africans were brought into this land to serve as slaves, when it was recognized? by the slave owners, by the society, by Christians in general, that some of them were also Christians. Did our brothers and sisters before us stand up and fight for their brothers and sisters? Did did, did they unite together and say, you're not going to treat my family that way because they are my family? Some did. By and large, that was not the united response. So it seems even at, even at the genesis of the quote-unquote the black church or, or the, the acknowledgement of that there are now black Christians and white Christians in our land, there was already this divide that was there. There was never true unity there. And then after that, after the slaves were free, especially in the Jim Crow South where, they were, where racism was legislated and was put into practice via the laws, did our brothers and sisters in the faith before us, particularly of lighter skin, they oftentimes did not allow black Christians to have positions of leadership within the church. We're okay with you sitting in that part of the church, but we're not really fully welcoming you into the fellowship, and we won't trust you with leadership roles and responsibilities. And many would say that hence the black church was born at that point. So what I'm saying is the problem began because of a lack of of biblical discipleship around the topic of oppression, even though the Bible is very clear about how God feels about oppression and how God wants his people to respond to oppression as well. Usually when I talk about this, the question that comes up is, okay, what do we do now? What, what do we do? I see, I see your point. I see where you're coming from. What exactly is it that we can do? Speaking as a majority white family of churches, what is it that we can do? And this is an important question to ask. It's a very valid question for us to ask. First thing we need to do in my call to action today, I'm going to have two points. The first one is let the Bible lead the way. Let the Bible lead the way. One reason I say that we need to let the Bible lead the way is because guilt is not a strong enough motivator. It's just not a strong enough motivator. Let me try to give an, an example because I think I, I've seen examples of, at times of people believing that the guilt that they feel will motivate them and sustain them. And I'll try to give you an example where that hasn't been the case. And I don't want us to, to, uh, to overestimate our resolve and commitment to this based off of the guilt oftentimes that we feel when this topic is brought up. So this was probably two or so years ago at this point. Our church, Midtown Two nights, we used to meet on Sundays in the middle of the Pinehurst neighborhood. Uh, at the corner of Schoolhouse Road and, and Irvin Street, if you're familiar with that neighborhood. Well, there, there's a lot of people in poverty there. And on top of that, the nearest grocery store is over a mile away. Many people in that neighborhood did not have consistent transportation. So when people got food, they, could, they, would only, they would usually get it from places they could walk to. With the grocery store not being within walking distance for many of them, especially the elderly, the place becomes what many call a food desert. A food desert just being a place where people don't have consistent access to healthy food, especially fresh fruits and vegetables and that type of thing. So we saw that as a problem, and we got connected with a farmer who would actually come to our yard on Sundays, two Sundays out of the month, and just sell his products. He accepted EBT, food stamps, government assistance, and all that, so it worked well for our neighborhood. But in order to sustain it, we needed other people with resourcing to buy in and consistently come and purchase his products so that he would keep coming back. So at this time, I was speaking to a lot of different places about racial unity and things like that. And one of the things I would often do was just have an email list for people where they can sign up if they were interested. Because we would let people know what groceries he was going to have, what fruits, what vegetables, and things like that. And I just asked people, like, hey, give me 10 minutes of your time and come spend $20 that you were going to spend on groceries on something else anyway. And just buy it right here in Pinehurst. And in doing so, you will give this neighborhood access to something that they have not had access to. And people generally love the idea because it you know, gives a tangible answer to the question of, well, what is it that I can do? And, I'm telling, and I want to say this to you because I've seen so many people overestimate how committed they were when their commitment was rooted in guilt. Less than 15% of the people who signed up and said that they were going to come actually came. Less than 15%. I don't, I don't say that to tell you that you need to be doing more. I say that to tell you that when the motivation is simply guilt, it's not going to be enough. And oftentimes we will believe that we're very committed to racial unity and racial harmony and serving the the oppressed and the marginalized. But we need to lead or let the Bible lead the way for us. And pray that as we search through the scriptures, that he would transform us through the power of his spirit. Not only is it that guilt is not a strong enough motivator, I will also say that not following the Bible, the reason we need to let the Bible lead the way is not following the Bible is how we got into this mess in the first place. Not following the Bible is how we got to a place of this this disunity and this lack of harmony within brothers and sisters in the faith of different skin color that we find ourselves in today. I have a document that I would like for you to work through. Uh, it's a collection of scriptures, passages, and chapters. Uh, I've spent a good bit of time just trying to study on what does the Bible have to say about oppression? What does God have to say about it? How does he feel about it? How does he tell his people to respond? So I made a document. It's going to be on the website when this sermon is posted online. I have a request for you. I would ask for you, for everyone in the room, especially if you're, if you're a member here at Midtown Downtown, I would ask for all of us, download the document, slowly, prayerfully, Work your way through every scripture, every passage, every chapter, asking God to cause you to feel about oppression the way that he does. That's all I'm asking. Let's let the Bible lead the way. Let's get our minds, our hearts, our eyes on the Bible. God, help me to feel about this the way that you do. Help me to see it the way that you do. Help me to respond to it the way that you do and the way that you desire for me to respond to it. You'll be able to find that at midtowndowntown.com slash teaching. When this sermon is posted, that document will be posted with it. I consider that to be important because oftentimes we let the world disciple us on this topic. We let the world disciple us around, topic, around the issue of race and specifically oppression and the vulnerable and the marginalized. Some questions to help you diagnose whether or not that's the case for you. When this topic comes up, do you know more? Can you quote more of what your favorite news station has to say about oppression than you can quote what the Bible has to say about it? Are you more familiar with a certain politician's stance, with a certain political party's stance about the issue of oppression than you are familiar with what the Bible has to say about it? If so, dare I say, I I would ask you to seriously consider if you have been more discipled by the world on this topic than you have been discipled by the Word of God. For me, this is particularly sad and grievous because This has been the problem the whole time for Christians in our country, that we let the world tell us how to respond, how to think, how to act specifically around this topic. Right? Centuries ago, when Africans are enslaved in our land, the church is not saying, hey, the Bible says that we shouldn't be doing this because of all these verses. The the church is taking its cues from the world. Then later, when, when slaves are released and, and segregation is, is mandated and it's legal and people can discriminate as much as they want to based on race, the church in general was not standing up and saying, hey, the Bible says we should respond to oppression this way. No, the church has taken its cues from the world. This has always been the problem. And the sad thing is now, so many years later, this is still the issue. That we as Christians, we take our cues from the world and we haven't been discipled in the Word of God around this specific topic. I want to ask you to slowly, prayerfully work your way through the document. God, help me to feel about this the way that you feel about it. Help me to see it the way that you see it. We are a people that need to be led by the Word of God. So we must let the Bible lead the way. Point of action number two, or action point number two. First one is let the Bible lead the way. The second one is participate and serve the city. Participate and serve the city. If you are in this room and you served this weekend with one of our Serve the City partners, I am appreciative of you. I am appreciative of you, of your service. When we intentionally target the marginalized and the vulnerable in our city, we are responding in very biblically faithful ways. When you volunteer with our Serve the City organizations, especially those who serve impoverished African-Americans in our city, which from my just asking around is over half of them, you are doing the ground-level work of a biblical response to oppression, specifically the oppression that African-Americans have endured. And this is every single time, every act of service, every time when you want to stay at home and you get up and go anyway. For those of you who have already done that this weekend, especially with Ezekiel Ministries, Transitions, Homework, Epworth, Daybreak, you are serving the vulnerable And especially when serving impoverished African-Americans, you are responding to oppression in biblically faithful ways. And I want you to be encouraged by that. I want you to be encouraged that you are a part of a family of churches that takes this seriously and is very intentional with our Serve the City partnership so that we can be faithful to the Bible and what he has called us to. And on top of that, if I can zoom out just a little bit, our family of churches responds to oppression in very biblical ways, specifically when it comes to church planting. When Midtown Two Notch was was planted in 2013, we had the idea that we're going to target some, some of the poorest parts of our city, especially those along Two Notch Road. Very quickly, we identified three neighborhoods in that area where the median annual household income was under $7,000 a year, according to the census and its research. Oftentimes, churches don't plant churches or people don't plant churches in those communities because of the fear that we won't be financially sustainable if we target the poorest of the poor. So oftentimes when churches are planted, it's going to places where families with money are moving into, places that are booming and places that are growing, because then you can have a church that is sustainable. One pastor in our city said, if you tell me where the next Chick-fil-A will be successful, I'll tell you where our next church plant will be successful. Because we often think of church planting from a, a purely business model. But if you're, if you're a member here at downtown and you're consistently, sacrificially giving to support the mission of the church, I don't know if you knew this or not, but some of your resources that you are giving to the church is allowing Midtown Tunach to remain sustainable. As we've been going for a little over six years now, in large part because of your generosity and your sacrifice and you're part of a family of churches that has looked at the Bible and said, we got to respond to this. We can't say, hey, we'll plant a church in your area if you can afford it. We have made it our resolve that whatever we have to do to be able to plant churches where people need the gospel, let's do what we have to do to make that happen, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of the social determinants that are currently affecting them. I want you to be encouraged that this is how we view ministry, that we look at the Bible. What does it have to say about oppression? How do we respond faithfully? That said, I don't want you to get me wrong. Midtown Family of Churches is not going to fix the problem. We're not going to be able to fix it. This is a problem that's been going on for centuries before we got here. It'll be going on after we leave here, but we can do our part. But we can do our part. But if you have been serving with Serve the City Weekend already, you have been helping us as a family of churches to do our part. You have joined in with us, and we are doing what we can do to serve and be a blessing to those in our city as we seek to serve the marginalized and the vulnerable in our city. We're not gonna fix it, but all anyone can ask anyone to do is do what they can do. Oftentimes I get uh, Christians from our Tuna Church, our downtown church and our Lexington Church often saying, I don't feel like we're doing enough to try to promote racial unity and things like that within the city. And one of the things that I like to challenge them on is like, okay, I hear what you're saying, and I do believe we could could probably always do more. But don't tell me that you care about racial unity and racial reconciliation if you sit at home on your couch when the family of churches is getting together on Serve the City weekend and other times to go and actually serve in a way that promotes racial unity within our city and within the body of Christ. Don't tell me that this is something that you truly care about if you're not actually going to join with your brothers and sisters in the faith and do the work that the Bible calls us to do to promote the type of unity that we all desire to see. But no, let's join together. Let's lock arms As a family of churches, downtown, Two Notch, Lexington, let's go and serve those who are vulnerable. Let's go and serve those who are marginalized in our city. Let's sacrifice our time. Let's sacrifice our resources. Let's sacrifice whatever we got to sacrifice to be about doing the godly work that he has called us to. Let us unite together to show off the love that our God has shown to us. When we do serve those who are vulnerable, those who are marginalized, we image and we show off the God who's going to come back and bring about a new creation where there will no longer be any type of social determinants that lead to people being vulnerable or lead to people marginalized, being marginalized because he's going to take all of his people to go and be with him where everyone will be cared for and everyone will have plenty and all of their needs met. So we show off his love. We show off his character when we unite together and serve in our Serve the City partnerships, when we join together across our family of churches. In the biblical narrative, oftentimes the gospel is shared and communicated as Jesus being the liberator that comes to free the oppressed. Jesus says that all who sin are enslaved to sin, but if the Son sets you free, that you, you will be free indeed. Paul writes in the book of Romans about how we are enslaved to our sin, but when, when we are saved, we are now free to live for our Lord and for our Savior. So when we go about serving those who have been marginalized, serving those who have been downtrodden, serving those who are vulnerable, we show off the love of our God who's going to come and set his creation free from the tyranny and from the slavery of sin. We show off our God when we go and serve and partner with all of our serve-the-city partnerships as we unite together as a family of churches. Let's continue to get after If you've already been doing it, let's continue. Let's continue to invite those in our life groups to continue to serve that we might be about this beautiful work of our Lord and Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Father, that you saw us enslaved to sin. You saw us being being controlled by our sinful desires, by our sinful urges. You saw us needing a new master. You saw us needing to be made new, and you came and you sacrificed what you had to sacrifice so that we could be set free. So that we could be free from our oppressor. Father, would you help us to respond in biblically faithful ways to the oppression of our day? Would you help us to continue to, to be motivated and, and just give us the, uh, the energy that we might do it in your strength to continue even in times, Father, when we don't feel like it, to continue to serve and partner with our serve the city partnerships and serving the orphans, the widows, and the sojourners of our day. And Father, we look forward to the day when you will take us home to be with you, where all will be taken care of, when all needs will be met, when no one will be vulnerable in the same ways that we see so often, that we have seen even this weekend. Father, equip us through the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to show off your love to our city and beyond as we serve those who are vulnerable and those who are in need in our city. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.